Welcome to the Fifth Estate. They bring you the story. We bring you the truth. The Fifth Estate is the news behind the headlines, holding those in power in check. And now, with the real story, here's Cameron Blewett. Hello, Australia, and thank you again for joining me here on this another episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast. Once again, I have Robin Tudor joining us. So, Robin, um, who are you, what do you do, and all that sort of stuff, please. Who am I? Who am I? I am a naturopath, nutritionist, counsellor, lifestyle medicine practitioner, and I write a substack. And what else do I do? I guess I just generally stir up, you know what, about uh, every every lie that we're being told right now by people who we're supposed to be able to trust. Okay. Now... Stirring up, you know what? I, I think that that's what a lot of us, um, I won't say awakened or anything like that, but more no, critical thinking. That's what I'm going to put yeah. it down to is because I, I think that that's something that's, that's been lost um, over the last couple of years and I know we've ranted about it before, but, you know, um, case in point, the, the vegan movement, um, yes. about that, that they've lost. Mind. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, we've, we've got a lot of things to talk about today. Um, so I think we might just kick it right off. Um, and then if we've got time left over, we'll um, see what hasn't settled and, and we'll start kicking some more. So um, good. I'm right. hoping if all my buttons work right on my machine, um, you should be able to hear this little clip. Now, it came from Twitter, so it's rather comical, there's a whole lot of uh, clips of Supreme Leader Andrews doing his presses, talking about the um, what they call in the US the Fauci-ouchie. Um, I don't know what they're going to call it out here, but um, the series of therapeutics that the government uh, has dictated that we participate in. Um, so there's a couple of clips of him together talking about it. Then there's a Batman thing. It, it w- looks better when you watch it, but because this is radio, we just have to deal with that. And then we get on to Slugger. You just have to exercise your imagination. Yes, yes. If you haven't <laughs> lost it, just use your imagination. I mean, those, I think most of my audience is old enough to, to remember what the Batman sound looks like and, and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So here we go. Protests don't work against this virus. Only getting vaccinated works against this virus. We can't open up because our hospital system has been flooded with patients who would never have caught the virus if only they got vaccinated three or four weeks ago. They know, like we all do, that these vaccines work. These vaccines work. These vaccines are safe and they work. Every person that's vaccinated is one less person who can become seriously ill. Um, Despite two, three, four doses of the vaccine, uh, it's not so good at preventing infection in the first place. So we are getting infected. That's why we've had uh, tens of thousands of cases in this wave. Now, just on that one. Now, before before I get your comments, I want to read uh, something that the ABC put out that Slugger has retweeted and um, talked himself up on. Now, uh, this was ABC from, was it last Friday? Um, it's one of their little RMIT fact lab check uh, fact checker, whatever you want to call them. And it talks about Slugger saying, no, Professor Brett Sutton did not admit that COVID-19 vaccines never worked. Now, they waffle on about a lot of garbage, um, contacted the Department of Health and a spokesman said, without context, 
as active as active disinformation. I'm not talking right today. Um, anyway, um, let's go. Um, and it's quoted: "Data and evidence around COVID nineteen changes as the virus changes, and we have always reflected those changes in messaging and advice." So it says, "What did Professor Sutton actually say?" Now, they've downplayed it as saying that the Chief Health Officer's April advice was delivered when the dominant strain of SARS-CoV-2 was the Omicron variant, BA2, and before Australia had recorded any cases of BA4 and BA5, which were the dominant strains in Victoria by the time of his August media conference. During the more recent conference, Professor Sutton said the vaccines were, quote, not so good at preventing infection uh, with the BA4 and BA5 strains, but that they are still produce a, down, a bit of downward pressure on transmission. Now, I'm not going to go into the rest of the crap because it just makes my head spin, the, the double speak there. So um, as the, the more learned one out of the two of us, what are your thoughts on that one? Okay, so I've, I've been... Uh attempting to do deep breathing and other other various methods to, to control my urge oh. to just yell, you freaking liar. <laughs> I'm, it, it, it's, this is just beyond belief. I mean, look, the Rochelle Walensky of the US CDC announced, what was that, back in August of last year? that And, and it had been known for, for some time before that, that, that the jabs were not pre- preventing transmission. They don't prevent infection. They don't prevent transmission. They were never tested for that in the first place. And any capacity that they did have to reduce transmission is long gone. It was gone by, at minimum, the emergence of the Delta variant. And so, again, you know, we're talking middle of last year. It was well established. There was no utility of these shots in preventing infection or preventing transmission. And, of course, it's also extremely well established. There are data from all over the world showing that the the more jabs you've had, the, the higher your risk of getting infected with the Omicron variant specifically because there are, you know, 30 mutations in the spike protein of that sucker. It just doesn't... The, the antibodies generated by, by the, the shots don't have any impact on it. I mean, if anything... Well, so the Omicron variant, although its origins are sort of shrouded in mystery, um, one of the theories that's being put forth is, is that it is what's called an immune escape variant. In other words, it is it is perfectly engineered to evade the immune system that, that's been um, prompted to respond using, using the shots, okay? So immune escape variant, in, in other words, it's actually created by the jabs, because because the the jabs um, impose what's called selection pressure, and so you know viruses mutate every time they replicate, and most of those mutations come to naught. You know they don't confer a survival advantage. In fact, they they confer a survival disadvantage. But if that virus can just randomly generate a, a mutation that gives it some kind of advantage, and by advantage of, of course this meant an ability to evade the person's immune system whether that's their, their natural immunity or, or whether that's their, you know, jab-created uh, immunity, then, you know, that that is the variant of the virus that's going to spread like wildfire. It's going to replicate in that person and it's going to spread. And if in the process of spreading, it encounters a whole lot of other people whose immune systems have similarly been um, disabled or, or warped, then, man, that virus is, is, is going to be party time for the virus. 
So it is, it is just unbelievable how these people get up in front of the public and the press and they flat-out lie, and then academics uh, perpetuate the lies on their behalf. Yeah. It, it, it's just total outrage. And and this is the thing is that any I, – I remember at, at the start when they were talking about the jabs because the, the series of therapeutics came out at the wrong time in the, the, the cycle of the virus rather than, you know, uh, and I'm not – you know, I may mash it up in, in my recollection and all that sort of stuff. But it's the thing is that if you're going to go for a, a jab campaign, you do that – on the downward spiral to prevent reinfection, not when everything's everyone's getting it for it because from what I understood is that the jabs were for those who didn't have the immunity. Now, I'm not saying it's a let it rip, let everyone die and all that sort of shit that, that, that the lefties are going to come out. Oh, sorry, the, um, no, that, the authoritarians are going to come out. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and there, there was one of the um, conspiracy um, projections, theorists, views, whatever, that by putting the jab in so early was that it was going to create these mutations that become more resistant to it. And yes. it's... it's Yeah, it, it, it's well known among immunologists that you vaccinate it's called an active pandemic. In mm. other words, if the virus is out there replicating freely, you know, spreading from this person to that person, and then once it's set up shopping in, in a person, it's, it's going to spend the first four or five days just happily replicating because that person you know, doesn't have any, any defences. Now, the thing is, of course, that, that uh, the, the, and this, by the way, is true of the, the COVID jabs, but it's also true of, of the previous therapeutics that were properly known as vaccines, that you don't, you don't develop the antibody response after you've been injected with a vaccine for at least a week. It's, it's more, it's closer to two weeks after you have been injected, okay? So, so just say, just say, you trotted off and got your first COVID jab, right? So uh, we, we know that, number one, you're not going to be generating antibodies until, as I say, somewhere in the order of 10 to 14 days after that jab. But two, we also know from, again, these, these are studies that were done in the first year of the pandemic. I'm sorry, in the first year after the other jabs were introduced, I, I should say. Uh, we know that there is immunosuppression. The immune system is suppressed for the first two weeks after a person has had their jab. So off you go out into the wide, wide world with your with your first jab and you don't have immunity to, uh, well, you don't have any antibody defences against the virus yet, okay? Um, but you're going to work and you're, you know, going to a restaurant and you're just you know, mingling and, and, and being amongst other people and there's every chance that you're going to get infected and you'll be infected at a time when, when your antibody response is just developing, which is a perfect time for the virus to go, ooh, look at this. You know, these are the antibodies that you're trying to produce against me, but, hey, I'm a smart virus and I can mutate and I can get past all of those defences. Obviously, I'm, I'm, you know, anthropomorphising a yeah, virus. Yes. <laughs> it says no such thing. Um, it just does what viruses do. It replicates, and every time it replicates, it mutates. And like I said, some of those mutations confer a survival advantage. And and uh, and what kinds of mutations confer a survival um, advantage depends entirely on the circumstances that the virus finds itself in. In other words, what are the immune properties, you might say, of the host? So there's, there's no sort of universal standard of fitness 
for a virus, fitness just meaning, you know, as in survival of the fittest, as mm. in mutations that, that give it the best the best advantage. Um, the, the fitness of a virus depends entirely on the kind of host that it finds itself in. Okay, so uh, the, the whole idea that that we we're going to mass inject people. Uh, while while there was a, a virus actively spreading, was insanity, and there were so many uh, immunologists, you know, people like like Gerd van den Bosch, who spent his entire career developing vaccines, and he was jumping up and down and shouting from the rooftops, you know, don't do this, this is madness. No, <sighs> so yeah, again, it just makes my head explode. Yeah, and and so going back to. That comment that you, you did mention that the survivability of the virus depends on the environment of the host. I mean, you have a look at it now, um, and as a generalisation, because the the stats do sort of um, back it up, you're putting the um, series of therapeutics into a um, a group of people who are traditionally or statistically. Uh, overweight to obese uh, and things yep. like that, and we're having a look at the uh, comorbidities or the underlying facts of those who have um, become statistics. And, and I'm not trying to downplay anyone's passing or anything like that. And but, you know, it, it's the thing is that there's a whole lot of markers that indicate the susceptibility of someone to passing with or yeah. from or with or whatever it is, um, that yeah, the, the response shouldn't be done. And just thinking about that, there was um, – what was I listening? I can't remember the podcast I was listening to is that um, all these lockdowns, um, it more, more or less it, it created an environment for sin rather than creating um, – you know, building an environment of community, like, for example, um, when the lockdowns came uh, in Victoria, because this is one I have first-hand knowledge of, gyms were closed, your libraries were closed, churches were closed, meeting places were closed, all that sort of stuff were closed, yet the um, uh, brothels were open, um, Macca's was open, all the fast food restaurants were open, you could still go and buy your booze. And the liquor shops, yes. don't forget the liquor shops. And, yep, yes. liquor shops yeah. were open um, and then they only put limits, buying limits because there were so many people there thinking, fuck, we're going to be locked down, so let's just go and drink ourselves into a stupor. Um, and Absolutely. even schools were closed and playgrounds were yeah. closed in, in things that, um, you know, do build a sense of community. And I remember uh, seeing... One of the reports that they put out was that the uh, likelihood of, of you succumbing or, you know, getting seriously ill on it, there was, a, you know, not a substantial marker but, but in, in line with everything else was your, your mental attitude towards it. Like if you thought that, you yes. know, this is it, you're yes. going to die, this is the worst thing since the plague or whatever it is and, and you've got no, you're going to just, oh, you know, fuck, I've got the... Anyway, um, okay, there goes the explicit rating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, a- absolutely. And, and and the other thing is, of course, that that it's it's been known for oh god, I don't know how long that social isolation is a, a bigger risk factor for for well death overall, but specifically for cardiovascular death than is smoking. So 
again, going going back to what you were saying before about risk factors for a severe uh, illness related to SARS-CoV-2 infection, as opposed to just you know having a, a flu-like illness and feeling pretty pretty crook. So those risk factors are age. I mean, there is literally a a ten thousand fold difference between the risk of serious illness in a young child versus an elderly person, you know, 80 plus, say. Uh, so age is the primary risk factor. And then we've got obesity, as you as you mentioned. Uh, that's a close second runner to, to age, as a matter of fact. And then we've got pre-existing cardiovascular disease or, or, you know, cardiovascular risk markers, you might say. So, yeah, so what happens when you lock a bunch of people up in their homes and prevent them from going to church? You know, you prevent kids from going to school. You prevent people from meeting up with their friends and, and uh, you know, playing sports and all those things that, that keep people sane and physically and mentally healthy, what do you think is going to happen? You know, people died as a direct consequence of the lockdowns. They died from suicide. They died from domestic violence. And and they died because of, of that fear that, that you're talking about, uh, so that if they did start to get symptoms, um, it's, it's almost like, like pointing the bone you know, that Aboriginal mm, yeah, yeah, ceremony yeah. we're <laughs> Yeah. And so people go, oh, my God, I've had the bone pointed at me and now I'm dead. Um, we And, and just, just on that note, we see very much the same thing as um, further research on long COVID emerges where the primary risk factor for developing long COVID and, man, we could, we could do a whole podcast about, about long COVID <laughs> and what it is yeah. and what it isn't. But anyway, so the primary risk factor for, for let's just say, getting a diagnosis of long COVID COVID is, is having a pre-existing anxiety disorder. Well, that doesn't that make sense? If you had a pre-existing anxiety disorder and then you were sitting home, you know, watching the boob tube for the past couple of years, being told, you know, there was war and pestilence and great slimy monsters crawling from the deep, um, and then and then you get COVID or, or do you? I mean, because who the heck knows? The, the testing is just a, a complete schmozzle. You can't, uh, you certainly could not rely on the results of PCR testing. The um, um, uh, rapid antigen test is is yeah, it's more accurate than PCR, but man, that's a low bar. Do you reckon? Um, so, um, uh, yeah, because it's actually testing for for a particular protein that's only present when when a virus, you know, presumably SARS-CoV-2 is is replicating. Like, you know, it, it could be another coronavirus that produces a a very similar protein. I mean. Again, how do you and I know when we don't have access to the to the lab manuals? We we don't know exactly how these tests are, are built and what they're tested mm. against. What what is the gold standard against which they're tested? We don't know. <laughs> Good luck finding out on the TGA's website. But anyway, so yeah. so just say you had a, a a cold or flu-like illness which you attributed to to COVID, and you're an anxious person beforehand, and you've heard all this stuff about long COVID, and then you know after you recover from your illness, you're you're feeling tired and you get headaches and whatever. Oh my God, I've got long COVID. Um, many of these people used to complain of feeling fatigued and having brain fog and having headaches before they ever got what they thought was COVID. Okay, yeah. I'm not. I'm not dismissing it. Post-viral syndromes exist. They yeah. they do exist. We know that they're a thing. I've seen plenty of clients over the years who who've had a post-viral syndrome after after glandular fever, after influenza, after a herpes virus infection. Um, I'm I'm not dismissing the idea that there are post-viral syndromes. That that would be nuts. I am saying that this whole long COVID thing has been just blown out of all proportion, and I I think it's. Um, 
I think it's just being sort of moved into place as the fear of COVID itself subsides, particularly in the Omicron era when, when we see that, you know, it's, it's just a cold, for God's sake. Mm. Um, you know, it's probably on the nastier end of the, the, the scale of colds, but it's just a cold. So now people aren't so scared of, of a big, nasty, you know, COVID anymore. Now we can terrify them about long COVID. And <laughs> so, I think mm. keeping about that thing about terrifying people, now that there's something that I did want, you mentioned something about people with anxiety disorder. Now I want to keep in with mm. Slugger um, because he's appeared in uh, – written a little question and answer thing for the ABC. Um, that's our chief health officer or whatever he calls himself as um, for that. Now, he's done one on monkeypox, which oh, well, interesting. Oh, I'm on the edge of my seat yeah, to hear this. But, I mean, interesting that, you know, they, they haven't given the same re- um, response to monkeypox as they have with this flu flu. Now, obviously, we understand why that... You know, it was the same thing that happened with HIV. If they had, a, you know, said, "Hey, it, it, it impacts this one particular group of people," let's focus on yeah. it. Um, and it, 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 it's, un, you know, I do understand why that they're doing it. Though, I think that they should have done it. In which case, people will turn around and, and arc up more because, you know, it would have turned around and said, "Hey, you're the government. What right have you got to tell me who I can see and who I can't see?" But that's mm. that's a whole new discussion there. So. Um, there's a whole lot of um, questions and all that sort of stuff. If you recall, though, we were given some rather explicit advice from our governments on how we should conduct our intimate affairs yes. during COVID, yes. right? <laughs> I mean, I, can, <laughs> they're, they're, I, I think the... Um, the advice of the uh, health department in British Columbia, I, I believe it was, was particularly choice, you know, um, use glory holes. Yes. Oh, good to know. Thanks for the advice. Yes. yes. And then there was, was it Kerry Chan in New South Wales who said that people should <laughs> mutually masturbate at a distance of yes. a metre and a half while wearing masks. So so they had no, they had no hesitation about prescribing sexual behaviour to the the general population, you know, which is understood to be a generally heterosexual population. But no, suddenly we we can't talk about such things because uh, because it's a minority group that that has this sort of sacred status. Mm. And and I mean, <laughs> down in Victoria, you had to have a designated partner that you, you a know, designated like, partner. Yeah, because right. okay. when there was a five k limit, to- totally yeah. But it's totally cool yes. to go to your group sex parties uh in the case of monkey box yes okay got it i'm clear on that so yeah um and uh, yeah there's a whole new rant on that one um but anyway um one of the questions can i get vaccinated um at the moment the criteria is really for those who are considered most uh, most at risk so that's men who have sex with men those who have a diagnosis of an sti in the last 12 months people experience homelessness significant mental illness and also sex workers who have clients who are men who have sex with men so they're the small eligible population at the moment and, of course, when we've got sufficient supply, which isn't far away, we'll open up in terms of eligibility. Now, my concern with that is why are the homeless and people with mental illness Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to raise that point. I, because, uh, excuse me? Homeless yeah. people? Where, where, does, where do they come into it? People with mental illness? Where, where do they come into this? Yes, and, I mean, you know, it, it's... That that first thing, you know, people, men who have sex with men and those with a diagnosis of an STI in the last 12 months should have just ended there. Yes. Why did yes. it? And, and it's... In fact, I would even say, what's the relevance of having had an STI? Um, I, 
not my thoughts would be that it could be a potentially compromised immune system. Mm, possibly. Um, from yeah, that? I guess so. Um, but yeah. understanding that, you know, it, it's it's the actions that you do that will make you susceptible to, to monkeypox. So, uh-huh. um, yep. I, yep. yeah, you know, I, I'd be borderline with, with that STI one, um, but definitely mm. why homeless and mental illness and... Yes, um, there just doesn't seem to be any any justification no. for that, unless they're, yeah, unless they're what? Like I don't know. It it's just it just defies all all rationality to target those those two particular groups. Yeah, and and so I'll, I'll come. I mean, that's seems like it, it's starting down that path of things that we went to war over sixty seventy years ago because they were the ones that were targeted first. Mm. And it's that. So anyway, um, yeah, um, I'll have a bit more of a rant about that in, in the follow-up thing that I want to hit on. Um, now, the mm-hmm. next question that they ask is, am I fully protected after the vaccine? The response is, with the first dose, <laughs> with the first dose, you're going to get substantial protection. And with a second dose, plus a couple of weeks for the immune system to kick in, it's going to be very, very substantial protection. So this is going yeah, to be a series um, of therapeutics as well. Yes, yeah, got it. Uh, the, the other thing to bear in mind is that I, I believe this is the Genios vaccine that, that the Australian government has obtained, right? Um, this thing hasn't actually been tested against monkeypox infection in, in humans. No. I'm, it's actually a smallpox yes, vaccine. Yes, but they've said and because I, it's, I believe, a, it's I believe a sister there was virus one, or something. Yeah, there was one animal species, and I, I, I actually I can't for the life of me remember which animal species it was, uh, where this was tested for protective effects against monkeypox. Um, but that's it. Like no, no studies in humans. Uh, again, this is just unbelievable. And yeah, you know, when when we recall what was done to gay men who contracted. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> there's a whole other podcast episode mm. in, in HIV and AIDS, right, and the, and the controversy about that. But, okay, let's, let's park that one for the moment. But the way, the way that gay men who developed, let's just say, AIDS-related illnesses were treated and mistreated and undertreated, I mean, the suppression by, by Anthony Fauci, for instance, of yeah. the use of, of the antibiotic Bactrim for the particular type of pneumonia, that these these guys were were getting. Um, God knows how many thousands. It's got to be at least tens of thousands of mostly young gay men died in the U.S. because Fauci would not, um, I suppose, authorize or approve or promote the use of Bactrim for pneumonia. And instead, it was messing around with with AZT, which of course is just this incredibly toxic failed chemotherapy drugs that just murdered, painfully murdered, again, thousands of gay men. Oh, my God, we're, we're going to do this again, are we? <laughs> and it's, you know, and, and this is what I wanted to segue into the next one, um, the, the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is probably going to be the, the, the most, um, the one we have the biggest discussion on, but have we learned anything? What is it with... Is it that these yeah. people wear white coats and all of a sudden they're, you know, it's their way or the highway? And, you know, it's, um, I don't know, it, it just baffles me. Like I, I was uh, an apprentice when the AIDS um, things w- was coming out in Australia mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I did 
do a lot of what you know what I could at the time, homework on, on that, and you know found out that it wasn't spread by breathing and and toothbrushes and and all that sort of stuff. Cereal and, boxes. Yeah, and and yeah, <laughs> and trade school did a um, bit of a for, for how it related to screen printing. I've got no idea. But they did some sort of uh, – there was a segment on it, a little session that we did on it because it was something that was coming out and, and um, you know, because we're all, you know, as you are when you're apprentice, you're young, dumb, stupid and you think you're bulletproof and all that sort of stuff, which may have been awareness thing. But I remember having a, a bit of a passionate discussion with the um, teachers at the time that their information was wrong um and and that it was running down that that point of stigma stigmatizing a group of people and uh you know it, it was something that you know then after being said to him oh hang on i think you're wrong and said this this and this that they've actually looked at it and thought you know, maybe we are so then they've done a bit more homework and then mm. um a couple of days later at the next session i think it was the week later or something like that they've said yes that the information that they had was incorrect and and all that sort of stuff so i mean yeah. Fascinating. It is fascinating. I mean, so you you so you you remember the um the famous uh, ad campaign right with the bowling ball that goes down yeah um and so Simon Reynolds was the genius behind that and quite early on in the in the COVID scandemic um Reynolds was interviewed and of course you know there there was enormous backlash uh, against that ad campaign because it was just flat out wrong and it promoted needless fear among segments of the population that, that had a vanishingly small risk of, of contracting um, HIV infection, you know, let alone developing AIDS, right? And so when Reynolds was interviewed early on in the scandemic and he was asked, you know, well, how, how, would, you, um, how would you approach this, like thinking, thinking about how to promote public awareness of COVID uh, from the perspective of an ad man? And he said, oh, well, you know, I'd put it out there that everyone was at risk. Like, What? like you did with AIDS, like the way you lied to everyone and made everybody scared, you would do that again. I, so have, have we learned nothing? He sure as hell hasn't. And, of course, you know, all the all the sort of talking heads who are interviewed him nodded along stage and said, oh, yes, Simon, you know, what a genius you are. So have we learned nothing? And, uh, well, the answer to that is clearly yes. Why why are we incapable of, of learning these major lessons? You know, why can't we look at what happened in Germany before the Second World War, you know, in the eight years or so uh, between Hitler sort of taking power and and you know the the uh, World War Two breaking out and the Holocaust and all the rest of it, why can't we learn from this? Um, I've I have had a sense for some time um, that we're actually entering a new dark age. And interestingly enough, I was listening to uh, Brett Weinstein on the Dark Horse podcast interview a, an independent science philosopher whose name temporarily escapes me. Um, but this, this guy has been, this independent philosopher has been saying the same thing. Not just we are entering the new dark ages, he thinks we're already in it. And he thinks it actually started at the, at the beginning of the 20th century. And his uh, rationale for that is that there are all sorts of really, really bad ideas that that just wouldn't stand up to any rigorous scrutiny if they were 
if they had rigorous scrutiny applied to them, but they don't, and that's the problem. So we have a whole bunch of really bad ideas in, in every field, even mathematics, which you would think is sort of relatively immune to this, certainly in physics, um, absolutely in biology. And I would say pretty much all the social sciences are, are just you know, one, one pile of bad ideas stacked on top of another pile of bad ideas. And no one will ever question the, the bad ideas that were handed down to them by the greats on the mountaintop. So that's why people don't question, because, you know, the, the, age, of, the age of enlightenment, the age of, of reason was all about vigorous debate. I mean, God, you know, you, you, read, you read the proceedings of, of, of some of the um, scientific and medical conferences. Those people just, they, they, they went at each other. You know, it was no holds barred. And it was expected that that, that had to be done in order to progress um, uh, scientific understanding. You had to have vigorous debate. Well, now that is essentially banned. You know, we can't debate gender uh, identity. We, we can't debate whether biological sex is actually a thing. We can't debate climate change. There's all sorts of things that are off. What is that characteristic of? It's characteristic of the dark ages, okay? We're, we're back in it. That's why we can't learn. It's because, it's because, you know, none of these important topics are being hashed out in, a, in the context of a, of a vigorous public debate where, where, you know, people who are extremely knowledgeable about the subject are um, uh, allowed to to converse and and yes to contest with each other in a long form setting, right? As opposed to this sort of idiot dumbed down soundbite culture that that we're in. All right, my big rant. No, 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 it's all good. I mean, and and but that's the thing. I mean, is that part of a uh, a, a plan for for a global takeover? Because it's the thing that the mm. only way that you can uh, or, you know, one of the ways that you get through to, to populations is to have them lose trust in things that they did trust before. So as we're seeing in the US and even here in Australia, um, the the current regimes are doing what they can to cause the population to lose trust in politics and politicians. We've seen mm. with the response um, in, in Victoria, as you mentioned earlier, uh, actually, no, you didn't. That was We were talking about it off air. Um, the response to the Wu flu um, and, and all that sort of stuff has caused a mass amount of the population to lose trust in, in law enforcement. And, you know, I'll admit, oh, yes. I've admitted before, oh, I, yes. I'm one of them. Um, and, you know, and we, we've seen it that we're losing trust in our courts because the courts aren't um, doing, you know, they're, they're not, they're not doing the letter of the law. It seems to be what they is in favour. They are not fulfilling their their duty yes. to you know uphold the constitution of this country and to actually you know interpret the laws of this country correctly. You know, um, as in not say, oh well, the law says this, but yeah, it was an emergency, so whatever they can do, what they want, because yeah. that's essentially <laughs> pretty much the judgments that have been handed down. Yeah, sure, you got a point about the law and all, but yeah, it was an emergency; they had to, so you know, suck it up. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, you know, we've lost faith in politics, the court, the politicians, so that's parliament, um, parliament, the courts and law enforcement. Schools, Sch schools as well. Oh, well yeah. oh, oh, and the medical system. I cannot <laughs> tell you the number of people who have either said to me in person or I get a lot of this in, uh, as comments on my, on my sub stack, people saying, you know, I 
I will not see a doctor for anything unless I, unless like, you know, I cut my leg off with a chainsaw or something, you know, um, um, people who have never questioned the childhood vaccination schedule, people who have lined up for a flu shot, got their travel shots when they went overseas, whatever, and now saying, oh, my God, I will never put another thing called a vaccine in my body again. Like mm. Their eyes have just been opened so wide. And the, the gaslighting of people who've been injured by the experimental therapeutics and, and no one, you know, their doctor won't acknowledge it. Because their doctor is too scared, and and you know rightly so, because if the doctor reports it as a as a uh, you know a vaccine injury, that doctor is liable to face investigation by by their you know say the medical board or, or APRA. Mm. So so um, as a result, you've got, uh, got I don't even know how many people or what percentage of the population this forms, but they have utterly lost trust in the medical profession and the health system, which. You know, Medicare's always had its flaws, but but I thought in, in the past, I thought we have a pretty good public health system, you know, by international standards. It, it, it's, it's reasonably functional. Well, there's a hell of a lot of people who would, you know, hesitate to present at hospital even if they were quite literally at death's door. Mm. So so good work, fellas. Uh, I don't know if that was their intention, and which is always the question, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's the old um, Hanlon's razor uh, question of, of or, or you know, dictum of, um, you know, never attribute to malice what can ad- adequately be explained by incompetence. Now, I'm willing to grant that, that there, are, there are just gobs and gobs of incompetence that uh, a lot of the behaviour that we have seen, a lot of the bad decision-making is flat-out incompetence. I don't really have much doubt about that, particularly at the lower levels. Where I struggle with attributing this to incompetence is is at the higher the higher levels, the you know the um, the positions with greater executive power. I don't think that they're that stupid or incompetent. And if it's not stupidity or incompetence, then what is it? Yep. It's malice. Yep. It's uh, premeditated. Uh, I, oh, I never used to use the word evil, but here we go. It's premeditated evil. Okay, so and, and now actually that's a good good thing to, to segue into the next bit. So there's there's talking a lots of circles. Um, Albanese's promised it, and um, I think Matthew Guy, who's the um, current and probably future opposition leader in Victoria, because he's just freaking useless, um, have promised mm. a royal commission into the Wu flu response uh, and there's talk over, you know, there's a lot of push online um, about a Nuremberg 2.0 trials. Now, my thoughts are that, first of all, Royal Commission's a waste of time. Nuremberg, well, what's that going to achieve? And the only, my thoughts, and I know we discussed this offline and and we seem Mm. to be in agreement with it, um, which really disappoints me because I was looking forward to having an argument about it um, because I wanted, (laughs) you know, was that, is that, um, you know, if okay, let's say we're going to go to Nuremberg. Okay, that has to be a global thing, and yeah. is 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 there going to be a massive shift on the political spectrum to the other side of, of you know the pendulum pendulum swinging the other way, where mm. we're going to do that? Uh, but then, okay, if the Nuremberg does come out, then what do you replace? the system that is obviously broken with once the trials are done um, mm. for that. And uh, the other thing about Royal Commissions, as we saw in Victoria with the Coach Royal Commission, was, was into uh, hotel quarantine. She was useless. 
um, mm. had a uh, – actually, it was a board of inquiry. Uh, it wasn't technically a royal commission, though mm. s- similar powers and, and all that, but just that little step down where it doesn't have the, the broad-reaching stuff. Um, it was only when Peter Credlin started turning around saying, hey, did you ask for the phone records? Did you ask for this? Did you mm. ask for that? That they reconvened it and actually asked for that information. Um, we still don't know to this day after spending millions of dollars on the Coates Royal Commission, uh, Royal Inquiry, uh, whatever the hell it was called, um, who ordered private security for hotel quarantine. We still is don't it, know. Isn't that extraordinary? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, oh, God, so much to say about that. Let's let's talk about Royal Commissions first. Um, <laughs> royal Commissions, like the outcome of a Royal Commission is essentially predetermined by A, the selection of the commissioner and B, the writing of the terms of reference. And I have absolutely zip zero and zilch confidence that any... Uh, any political party that's currently in power or any opposition party that, that has the capacity to, to form government is going to uh, select a commissioner and write term, or create terms of reference for that commissioner that are sufficiently broad to really figure out what the hell happened for the past two and a half years, who was responsible, who made these terrible decisions, what were the consequences of these terrible decisions. That ain't going to happen. Labor won't do it. Liberal won't do it. Uh, the Greens sure as hell wouldn't, wouldn't do it. Nobody is going to do that except, you know, if, if, if some miracle happened, if we woke up tomorrow and, 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 and one nation <laughs> was in power, then you'd have, you'd have um, Malcolm Roberts drawing up the terms of reference for this quick smart and he would make sure that, uh, yeah, uh, that the terms of reference were, were sufficiently broad. Um, short of that, just, no, it's not going to happen. It's window dressing. It's just to reassure people that, oh, we really are taking this seriously. No, they're freaking not and they won't. Okay, just with that, okay, Albanese's got a, um, a Commonwealth or Federal-based Royal Commission. What can they look at? Nothing because everything was state-based. So... Regardless of, of, and with all due respect to Malcolm Robertson and with what you said, doesn't matter how broad you make the term of reference, a federal royal commission has no authority to look into the state response. Yeah, it needs to be yeah, a state-based. It due, needs to be state by state. Due yep. to the way the constitution yep. is run and everything like yep. that, because yeah, you know, no, you're you're hundred percent right, actually, and and good luck getting that royal commission in every state and territory. It's not going yes. to happen. So. Okay, there's that, you know, and this is something I've put on Twitter as well is that, you know, the Liberal Democrats are pushing for it and, um, you know, mm. as their thing. Well, really, who are you going to get to chair it at that point that we've discussed? Um, term of reference. But then there's also the thing. What about the legal fraternity? The legal fraternity yeah. have let us down woefully over these last couple of so years. Despicably so despicably, just, oh, my God. I mean, there have been some champion lawyers, no doubt, but this tiny, tiny, tiny minority of the profession it is. My, my husband's an ex-lawyer. I call him a recovering lawyer. And he is just, I mean, he hasn't been, been in the practice of law for over 25 years, but he's just so ashamed to have ever been a member of that profession that they are just disgraceful, and absolutely disgraceful. So, I mean, and then, okay, but then, all right, let's say we do everything aligns. We get a royal commission, we get a competent commissioner or, or commissioners, uh, we get competent um, counsel assisting and, and everything like that. Then what happens? Mm. It, it's going to be the yeah. thing like uh-huh. like what we're, do, what's, we're seeing in the US, um, one administration mm-hmm. going after the previous one. And is that something that we really want? And, no, you know, and 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 meantime, the institutions, because that 
that's the level at which the corruption well, I mean, the corruption exists at every level, but it's the corruption within the bureaucracy mm. that is the most persistent. You can call it the deep state. You can call it the the uh, you know, the, the sort of executive, like the hidden executive power, whatever you want to call it. Like I don't care. Um, but there there is this this force that is there regardless of, of which political party is nominally in power because they're not in power. They don't really have the authority or the capacity to, to change policy in any meaningful direction. And and so um, so I, I want to come back to that because you asked the question like, you know, what, what happens when all the institutions that, that were proved corrupt are... Uh, um, you have to be decommissioned or whatever have you. And, and let, so let's talk about Nuremberg. Um, because the Nuremberg trials, while they certainly did uh, achieve something in terms of rounding up some of the, the most egregious Nazi war criminals, and also, of course, formulating the Nuremberg Code, although what the hell good did that do us because it's, it's, it's being abused every single day. But um, I, I think what most people fail to realise is that the, the individuals tried as part of the Nuremberg trials were a tiny fraction of the total you know, Nazi forces, you might say. And on the whole, they were underlings. So, for instance, in, in, the, in the doctor's trial, which formed part of the Nuremberg trials, I mean, obviously, apart from all the other um, really egregious crap they were into, the, uh, the Nazis, because, because their um, driving uh, ideology uh, was eugenics, which, of course, <laughs> sorry, tangent here. Mm. Um, the, the, the Nazis didn't develop eugenics. <laughs> it, that eugenics was, was the, the creation. Yeah, eugenics was the creation of of uh, Charles Darwin's first cousin, Francis Galton, who uh, then popularized it among the the British intelligentsia, uh, and then it was picked up by the by the American elite and uh, funded. To the, to the tune of millions of dollars by the Rockefeller Foundation. And then it was the Rockefellers who actually uh, helped Hitler, because Hitler was a great admirer of, of American eugenics policies. He was all in for sterilization of the, what do they call them? Um, the feeble-minded, mm. that's it. He thought that was a great plan. And so the Rockefellers, uh, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, that is, uh, stumped up some money to set up a, as a sort of version of their eugenics institute in Germany. And that was essentially where the, the whole program of, you know, culling uh, the, the mentally disabled and the uh, and, and the gypsies and the homosexuals and uh, and the Jews, of course, that came a little bit later. But uh, and the elderly and basically anyone who wasn't fit to work or whatever. Um, although those plans were cooked up out of this eugenics institute that was that was founded by American money, robber baron money. Okay, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so what happened in the in the doctors? Again, there were reasonably junior and senior doctors and nurse um, who who I can't remember exactly how many defendants. If memory serves, there were about twenty two, and I think something like fifteen or sixteen of them were found guilty, and I don't know a dozen, maybe a bit more. Were, were hanged. And 
What? What? Do you know what happened to Joseph Mengele though? Yeah, didn't he go to the US? Uh, South America, South America, as a matter yeah. of fact. So why wasn't he tried mm. as part of the the Nuremberg trials? Now he he had a buddy in Germany. Um, if I, if my memory serves me correctly, I believe it was Ernst Rudin, and Rudin was based in a West Coast university. I um, I would not. I would not sort of hazard a guess just out of my memory banks as to which university it was. But but Mengele wrote up his experiments on a daily basis and every every week he would update his mentor in the United States on what he was up to in those concentration camps, right? So the Americans knew what uh, Hitler's henchmen doing before the war, during the war. Okay, so so how is it that, that Mengele wasn't tried in the Nuremberg trials? Well, he had a buddy in high places. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm sure you've you've heard, um, many more people have heard this than, than before the scandemic anyway, of Operation Paperclip, mm. which was basically where a whole lot of the, you know, the most god-awful Nazi war criminals had their, their you know, records um, washed by, well, it was a precursor to the CIA, it was the OSS, and, and they, were, uh, they, they were sort of parachuted into academic gigs and political advisory gigs in, um, in the United States and, and, you know, and some of them in, in West Germany. Right? So Nuremberg, uh, what, what did Nuremberg really achieve? Like I say, we've got the Nuremberg Code, which seems to be going pretty well, until the last yeah. couple of years when no one even seems to know what it is anymore, no one administering medical procedures at least. Um, and and most of the, the sort of primary architects of the the Nazi regime got off scot-free um, because, again, you know, they, they had friends in high places. So you think that wouldn't happen again with Nuremberg 2.0? Come Look, on. And, and that, right? that's going to be the same thing is that, you know, like they might find a few scapegoats, as they do with all these yep. royal commissions and inquiries. Yeah, a few people to throw under the bus. They'll yep. find someone to throw under the bus and say, "Yep, it's all because of that person." Um, mm. So the powers that be, you know, they're absolved of all guilt and responsibility. And hey, or was that like the Queensland floods? Uh, it was two engineers mm. that that didn't follow the manual or something like that? Well, the manual was fucking forty years old. So yes. it's um, so who hadn't updated the manual? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll admit, probably a couple of months ago, I was all for one. I'd love to see these people in glass boxes in the middle of um, Federation Square, so we could look at them for years to come and say, "This is what we don't do." Nowadays, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, and it's probably going to be controversial. I think just forget the whole freaking lot and just get Parliament to pass. Sufficient amendments to legislation and just rip up legislation, we will never have this happen again. Stuff the inquiries, yeah. stuff the commissions, because that's it doesn't change anything. You're just going to be finding ways to do things. Just turn around and say, no, nah, let's make this, a, a, you know, constitutional amendments or whatever you want to do that it doesn't happen again. And yeah. um, I mean, yeah. even, even that is only worth the, the paper that it's printed on um, as we've seen what's happening in the US with all their Bill of Rights and, and everything like that, how that's getting um, trodden oh, on. it's getting totally trashed. And all that. Um, yeah. And, you know, being a, a, a potential controversial opinion, um, you know, I think we need to enshrine um, something um, similar to the Second Amendment out here um, at, at the state level. 
Um, you know, I never understood why, uh, not all Americans, but why a substantial proportion of, of Americans were so attached to their Second Amendment. I never, I never grasped it. I thought it was, I thought it was silly. Like, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, use use your shotgun against the military. Are you really? Well, good luck with that. Um, but I, I now I now do understand it. And the fact that you've got around half the population really freaking heavily armed mm. <laughs> certainly does act as a deterrent for overzealous law enforcement. Mm. So you know, if you as a, a, a member of the police force or FBI or whatever have you, um, if you know that. You can just walk into into someone's house, right? And you can you can turn it over, you can rough them up, and and um, you know frighten their kids and terrify their wife and whatever. Um, and that guy doesn't have like half a dozen weapons that he could take a few of your men out with. Well, you're going to be uh, a lot more um, a lot more keen to walk into those kinds of situations, aren't you? Then mm. if you know that there's a whole lot of people who who have a hell of a lot of arms and they've done um, a reasonable amount of practice with them, right? They know how to shoot those things. So, yeah, um, it, it's it's not controversial to say that that every every regime that subsequently became dictatorial has first disarmed its, its populace. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I... I uh, was actually not opposed to the the gun buyback after Port Arthur. You know, back in the days when John Howard got some, um, um, you know, some glory for yeah. for doing that. Because it, because Port Arthur, I mean, just the horror of that event um, was very psychologically scarring. Well, you know, I've now come across some information. I don't know whether it's true or not, but but the whole thing about Martin Bryant having single-handedly pulled mm. off the Port Arthur massacre, mm. look, that story has some holes. Let's just put it that um, way. And I, I don't think it has holes. I think it's um, very loose cheat, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so many things so, don't don't look right on that one. They when you when you look at it, emotion aside, with the cold reality of facts and information and mm. everything like that, there's so much that doesn't make sense. And so many of these U.S. school shootings as well, mm. they don't make sense. Yeah. Like this this latest one in 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 Uvalde, uh, case in point. Um, it's it's just there's so many gaps in that story that make absolutely no sense whatsoever, that it's really, it, it's it's very difficult to not be suspicious. Um, and the same is, is, is true for all the other famous school shootings. I mean, you know, Alex Jones rightly got absolutely caned for, for saying that Sandy Hook didn't even happen. I, I, I don't, I don't buy into that. But did it happen the way that, that we were told it happened? Yeah, I actually don't think that that's credible either. Mm. So, yeah, big suspicious uh, circumstances surrounding these these you know really catalyzing events. Mm. And so going back to to that discussion about you know potential Second Amendment, and it's the thing is that one of the um, comments that I get a lot is, "Oh, but you don't want all these people running around with guns." Well, for three years we had a thousand unauthorized fucking. Um, Mm. Um, protective safety of, um, service officers and coppers running around because they weren't properly sworn in. So technically they were 
unlawfully yeah. carrying a firearm and if you were a civilian doing that, you would, you'd be in breach of the Firearms Act, you'd be in breach of everything mm-hmm. and yet, yep. hey, because they're wearing a particular gang uniform and, and mate, I'm, I'm going to say now that is what it is. Um, it is a gang uniform um, yeah. because you've yeah. got a badge, I, I you've got a rank yep. structure, you've yep. got discipline within it, same as what the bikies do. And and I'm not comparing the two. I'm when you look at it um, clinically and everything like that. Now, and this is the thing, oh, but, you know, it, the, the police are there to protect us. Well, really? Look what's happened over the last two years. They've opened fire on an unarmed population doing yeah. a a peaceful protest. It, it turned so, ugly yeah. and violent at the instigation of Victoria Police. Oh, um, yes. They, they, were, they were the ones inciting violence. Yes. No doubt about that. It's so evident we had uh, when, the, when you watch any video of, of what went on there. We had the they regime the going out profiling people because you're wearing high-vis walking through the city. That mm. meant you, the Special Operations Group, which are the, the elite of the elite, were justified sticking rifle muzzles into your back, kneeing you. There was a guy who, um, I think it was a Soggies, just mouthed off, as all Australian, all Victorians, as Australians do, to coppers. You mouth off at the coppers. Bang, yeah. he mouthed off, off at the coppers, no threat to them. Three of them jumped out of the car and took him to the ground. Like, yeah. really. Just outrageous. Yep. Uh, look, I mean, yeah, this, this raises a very, very key philosophical point, which is is really, uh, I, I suppose, you know, let's, oh, let's just do it. Let's just jump into anarchist philosophy. You know, does the state have the right to a monopoly on violence? No, I do not believe no. that they do. Me. I do not believe they that do they not. do. And Victoria Police have... have totally ignored Peel's um, principles of policing and all that sort of stuff. And it's about time that the Victorian and Australian population woke up and realised that, that these people are not here to protect us. They're there to serve they the state. They are not. They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was I was just watching, oh, gee, what was it? I was watching a documentary this morning actually called... Um, Uninformed consent. I don't know if you've seen it yet. It, it's a Canadian production. Really, really exceptionally well done. And they, they had some footage from various protests around the world, including some from Australia. And there was a crowd chanting, chanting to the police who were, you know, doing the, the dirty work of their masters, chanting, you serve us, you serve us. I was thinking, well, yeah, that's a theory, isn't it? That's mm. a nice theory. <laughs> How's that working out for you guys? They're not serving you. They're not serving us. They're not serving you and me, Cameron. Let's just be very clear about this. They don't serve us. And so if they don't serve us, everything that they thought they were there to do for us, we we now have a, and I would argue that we always did, and this is, this is a, a, a huge part of how we got here. We, as as um, as individuals, we have ceded way too much responsibility to the state. We have ceded responsibility for uh, for our for our supposed health care that they provide, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, as a health practitioner, I, I, I would not argue that what they provide is health care. It is medical treatment. The two mm. are very different. We've seen responsibility for the education of our children. We've ceded responsibility for ensuring our own personal safety. We've ceded responsibility for every damn thing. And, you know, when people hit hard times or even, even you know, when life isn't going quite as well as they like, they expect the state to pick up the tab for them. 
uh, rather than, uh, and of course, you know, when, when state steps in to do these things, what it does is it, it erodes the strength of communities. So where you used to have communities providing support for people who would hit hard times, or maybe maybe charities, you know, could be church-based, mm. maybe not, but but it was it was people, it was people helping out other people, and when the state steps in. There's actually a moral hazard that's created by that because it's not people helping other people. People see others suffering and go, "Oh well, the state will fix that." Yep. You know, I don't need to worry about the, about the homeless person. And it on creates my new industries, and new industries uh, become profit driven and corruption, oh, yes. and and it's yes. just all that. And you know, it, it's the thing. And you know, discussions with that. You know, I admit I push more on the the anarchistic side of things uh, uh, for that. Um, But, you know, oh, if there weren't the police there, then people would just do everything. Well, yes and no. If if you've got a way to protect your rights, no Mm. one is going to do anything because they think just, you know, like, shit, man, if I go up to that person and try and rob them, fuck, they might have a gun or they might push back. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. You don't, you don't have to walk around with it, uh, you know, on display. No. It's even just the question in in the, you know, in your mugger's mind. You yes. Know, might they be armed? Well, if if they know that there's there's a reasonable chance that you are, hell, that's a deterrent. You yep. know? Um, yeah. So Would, taking and, responsibility for ourselves yes. and and also getting back into into community, which as as you said before, that was what all of the, the lockdown biosecurity theatre eroded. It eroded the sense of community. It amped up people's anxiety and hostility and, and uh, made them more prone to, to being, you know, set at each other's throats over things like, you're an anti-masking, you're an anti-vaxxer, mm-hmm. you know. So rather uh, than cooker being... now. <laughs> uh, sorry? They're cookers now. Please explain. I don't know. It's just <laughs> something that I've, I've seen um, um, the... Uh, Labor Party stooge uh, PR guy is pushing a lot. Anyone who's um, anti-therapeutics or anything like that is a cooker. Like, really, what is a, a cooker? cooker? Yeah. Um, I've got no idea. I'm still trying to find out what a cooker is. Yeah, but... I'm – okay, yeah. I, I was, at first I was thinking, what, cooker butter? No. Um, but no, no, no. <laughs> nothing to do with that. Okay. It's a mystery. <laughs> cooker. Righto. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Do you, do you reckon – do you reckon um, – all the pollies have, have, have had the real thing or no. do you reckon they're getting celebrity no. shots? Getting yeah. celebrity shots because it's yeah. an intr- intramuscular jab and I, mm. I haven't seen any of them have their arm pinched enough for it to be a, a genuine intramuscular jab. Yeah, yeah, certainly all the all the theatre we see on TV. Yeah. Like I, I I strongly suspect that, that, you know, the rank and file probably didn't get the celebrity shot, no. you know. Um, but people like but, Slugger and Stamen and Anastasia and, yeah. and all them would definitely have the celebrity yep. shot. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my strong suspicion. <laughs> yep. Um, and, you know, that's our opinions and we're entitled to our opinions. We're not saying it's fact or anything like that. It's just yeah, two people having a discussion that's prove, overheard by prove millions. Prove me right, prove me wrong. Yep. You know, if, if you were the the um, nurse or doctor who administered the uh, the, the shot to someone famous, <laughs> drop Cameron and I a line and let us know. <laughs> but, but even that, even that, like how do you know that? Yes, it may be yep, in a particular vial, like whoop de do. Yes, yes, yeah. You, you can put a sticker on anything, yep. can't you? Yep. Yeah. Let's go down to the batch codes. Let's let's do the whole process. But yes. anyway, um, yeah. I've taken up enough of your time. I'm going to let you go before I go on my other list of things that I want to rant about. 
Um, oh, we'll do that the next time, hey? <laughs> uh, I think I think we're going to have a whole discussion on the next one because I do want to talk about transhumanism. Um, oh, because, I am up for that. Yes, I yes. think we will dedicate oh, a, yes. a whole episode okay. just to discussing that one. Yes, so, all right. Um, before we we'll go, where can people find you? Well, what I would love to, for, for people to do is to follow me on my Substack. So it's just Robin Tudor. Uh, oh damn! I should have checked this. Uh, is it slash Substack Anyway, just go go, go to Substack.com and, and and type in Robin Tudor. There's only one of me. I'm not hard to find. Um, so come and follow my my stack. I have just published what is going to be. At least a two-part, could be a three-part series on da 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 the Mercury Project. Just quickly, have you heard of this one, Cameron? No, I um I did see your email that came out this morning, and I was going to look at it, but I thought, no, if I go down that rabbit hole, then it's, <laughs> it's not something <laughs> I want to go out before talking off, to. Off track for our discussion today. Yeah. Okay, so so look, um, I, I want you to read it, so I won't tell you too much. But the Mercury Project has been cooked up by uh, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and and, and some other you know uh, really really good and noble folks, and they are investigating um, how how uh, how it is that so many people don't want the jibby-jabby um, because doesn't it just sell itself? You know, why wouldn't you want a product that doesn't stop you from getting infected and doesn't stop you from transmitting the virus and now, now we know it doesn't keep you out of hospital? Why wouldn't you want that jibby-jabby? So they they have got uh, – they're, they're currently up to about $27 million. That's in U.S., not play money although we'll be playing money soon, uh, to, to study this around the world. They, they've picked 17 countries to operate in. Uh, out of the 17 countries, 16 of them are basically developing countries, right? So sub-Saharan Africa, um, South America, uh, we got Haiti, we got India, and the United States. So 16 third world countries and the U.S., that's where they're going to operate their projects in. And uh, I've got links to, to all sorts of, of you know, aspects of this, including, including a link to the, the projects that they currently have funded. Oh, my God. You've got to read this. It's just mind-boggling. So, anyway, um, the, the first part I've, I've just written about, you know, what the project is and, and what are the characteristics of these, of these countries that they've picked out because um, some of them actually have really quite high jibby-jab uptake rates. So it's, it's a bit of a mystery. Like, why pick Brazil to run this in when Brazil actually has higher jibby-jab rates than, uh, than, than the average high-income country? Okay, so that's, that's intriguing. And then next part, I'm going to dig into who are the foundations behind this. And what Ooh. what fun and entertaining things have they been up to in the past, right? So watch this space. I um, yeah, I started writing this yesterday, and I thought, oh, you know, this this is this is going to be kind of an interesting topic, but I reckon I'll be able to knock this over in one part. No free day. <laughs> well past midnight last night, finishing off just the first part, and I got that. You know, I thought, oh my god, like this is this is going to spin off in a thousand different directions because it is so fascinating when you start digging into this. But I suppose I would say, just to round this one off, the fact that they are going to spend almost 30 million smackers on figuring out why people don't want the jibby-jab is, is actually an encouraging sign. There are a lot of people who said no and hell no and 
if you come anywhere near my kid with that thing, I will blow your head off with my shotgun. But, <laughs> so, okay, just if they're, if they're spending that much money, does that indicate that the figures may be overstated? Um, again, 16 out of these 17 countries were, were developing countries and some of them, for example, Haiti, have very, very low rates. Now, I do think, and, and there's um, a fair bit of evidence from statisticians like, say, Norman Fenton, that the percentages that they're claiming of, of the total population um, or even target populations that have had it are, are actually overestimated. Now, I know that um, people like, say, Ricardo Bosi have been going around saying, oh, it's really only 25% of the pop- of the Australian population that's had it. That's that's bollocks. Um, I don't believe that at all. It's considerably higher than that. Is it as high as what we've been told? Possibly not. I suspect not. So there's this, uh, you know, there is concern about um, public pushback and the fact that uh, the booster uptake has been considerably lower than, than was anticipated, more so than than here. Australians are terrible suckers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in the US, the, the booster uptake has been, oh, um, like I think less than half of, of people eligible for a booster have, have taken it up. So, so there's that. But, but of course, I mean, the primary purpose of all of this is is not to move inventory of the COVID jabs. It's for next time. Yep, for next so, time. So, as always, they are studying uh, what has happened, what what went wrong, and how can they make it better next time so that they have basically total control. They're, they're particularly concerned with the, the spread of health, mis- and disinformation mm. yeah. um, on the interwebs um, and especially through social media. So, so that's really uh, a huge part of their their focus with uh, these projects and 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 the the kinds of you know uh, tools and techniques that they want to develop out of this. So, anyway, um, that's a heads up. So, if you want to read that, go to my Substack. And if you are interested in my services as a health practitioner. Uh, I do do that as well. I'll include all the links <laughs> to all that in the show yeah. notes. So hop on my uh, hop on my website. It's empowertotalhealth.com.au. And uh, let's get together and talk transhumanism before yes. too long, hey? Yes, for sure, for sure. All right. Alrighty. Thanks a lot, Robin, and talk to you soon. Over an hour. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fit The State, the news behind the headlines. Until the next episode of The Fit The State releases... We'd love for you to leave a review wherever you go to for quality podcasts. And we'll keep holding those in power in check.